you guys may be seated. Thanks for joining us at ESS this morning. You guys have been doing a lot of things, and um, especially for us moving and different stuff. Appreciate you guys taking the time and being here. We're going to continue through the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. We are now on verse 14. And before we do any type of introduction, just want to jump into the scripture um, and look at that together this morning. Now, like each week, we just read a little bit beforehand to give us some context of where we're at um, in this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And in verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This morning we'll be fo focusing on verses four, or verse 14. But I want to address one thing that I think everybody in here could agree on is that the Christian walk is hard. It's not something that's easy. It's not something that we just breeze through. But there are difficulties and there are trials in following the person of Jesus Christ. But the really good news about that is Jesus knew that, and he really set us up for that. And in John, we're going to see that not only did Jesus know that this life would be hard, but he also promised that he would be with us in this life that is hard. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus knew that we would be in a world that hated us, in a world that persecuted us, in a world that challenged us for our faith in the gospel. But he didn't say, I want to coddle them or take them out of the world. But instead, he said he wanted us here. He wanted us here for a purpose to represent who Christ was. But he said that he would pray to keep us from the evil one, that he would be with us. In John 16, 33, he makes a similar statement that he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have, will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That through our walk with Christ and setting our eyes on him, we're going to have to walk through some of the things that he walked through. And when we look at Jesus' life in Hebrews, it says that he was made perfect in suffering. The reason why I want to bring this up is we've been talking a lot about the fullness of Christ. And in the fullness of Christ, one of the biggest things we've got to do is set our eyes on the example of Christ and really look at what he did and what he went through. Not only did Jesus go through relationship issues and, and trials with religious figures, Jesus went through a lot of physical things, but also his death and his crucifixion on the cross on behalf of our sin, that the life of Christ is something that we really can't even fathom what Christ went through, but yet he is the example that now this word that we saw in Ephesians 4.13 is saying that we can replicate the fullness of who Jesus is. So I want to start before we jump into Ephesians 4.14 and just looking at the example of Jesus Christ for this reason because we finished last week talking about the fullness of Christ and maturity that we would be a mature man that, that we would come to in the Greek basically adulthood that we would be adults in Christ and not babies and in Ephesians 4.14 we start to see this aspect of, of maturity again and we see that if we aren't mature if we are children that will be tossed to and fro and will be fooled but yet there can be a stability in the person of Christ. Now, our hope isn't for an easy road, but our hope is that Christ can be with us on the difficult road. 
road. And, and matter of fact, Jesus made it clear there, there are two roads. One is easy, and that leads to destruction. There's one that's narrow, and that leads to life. And so it's a great thing to be on the difficult road. It's a good thing to be on the narrow path. But we got to remember that one Christ is with us. But while we're on this road, that we've been called to demonstrate maturity and demonstrate the fullness of who he is. For those of you guys who have been here the whole time through Ephesians, especially the last two or three weeks, we've seen this process that God is laying out in order for the church to be mature. But the, mature the church doesn't become mature just because we want to be, but the church becomes mature because we are in the process that Christ set before us, that we're in the vision that God has set before us. And now we're going to see in verses 14, 15, and 16 the fruit that gets produced when we are in that process. The fruit that gets produced when we're in that vision. And the first one we're going to look at in verse 14 is maturity, that we would not be children who are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. I don't know if you guys have ever had that happen to you. I have, where one minute we're here, the next minute we're over here, and the next minute we're discouraged, the next minute we're pumped. That's just, it's a bad place to be in. You know, we're living off our circumstances. We're living if we feel like we're right on a doctrine or, or we finally figured it out and then we found out we didn't figure it out and now all of a sudden we're bummed again. That this whole aspect of being tossed to and fro is not a healthy way to live. In the same way that if you entrusted the responsibility of a father to a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old, man, maybe they could do something right, but ultimately, man, they're going to fail and they're going to feel bad about themselves. That, that maturity encourages us and maturity brings us to establishment. And if there's any word we can take with us before we leave today is establishment. That just like Matt said in worship, Jesus Christ is for us. He's not against us. we got to believe that. And if you guys got time this week, Psalm 18 and Isaiah 40, I've been camping out in. And they're just two chapters in the Bible. It's all about the character of God. How big God is. How sovereign God is. How powerful God is. It's a very encouraging thing to know that God is the same God that wants to establish us. Is the same God that wants to bring us into maturity. That's the same God who wants to defend us. But the question is, will we receive that? Will we receive the process he's giving us? Will, he, will we receive his help? In Colossians 2, 6-8, this is the cross-reference we're going to look at multiple times throughout this um, sermon. He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Here we see two things. One, that we can be rooted and built up in Him, that God wants to establish us and we can have consistency and maturity as a church and as individuals in Christ. But also we see that we can be cheated and that we can be deceived. And that's very similar what we saw in Ephesians 4.14, to be tossed to and fro by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So we're going to look at the positive side. Now, we are following Christ and we are being discipled in this process. He wants to establish us. Now, what are the things that can keep us from being established? And there's three main things that I want to look at today. And that is shortcuts, that is deception, and that is compromise. These three things, this is a super creative title, Establishment, assurance, killers. The things that will kill our establishment and our assurance in Christ. I want to look at these three things and how they fit into the scripture that we're discussing today. First one is shortcuts. And this is from the aspect of leaders. If we desire to lead people, we desire to be an equipper of the saints, 
Look, we're going to look at Paul's journey as a leader in a couple of scriptures. And in Acts 20, some context to this is Paul is passing by Ephesus. This is a church that he's planted, people that he's seen saved, people that he's fathered in faith. But he doesn't have time to stop there and spend time with them. So it'd be kind of like if um, you had planted a church in Fort Collins, you spent time with these people, loved these people, but you were on your way to like Dallas. And so you ask somebody, say, hey, I can't come to Fort Collins, but why don't you meet me in Scottsdale, Nebraska? Why don't you meet me in Cheyenne, Wyoming? Whatever you're passing by, but you couldn't stop in Fort Collins. And these people packed up their stuff and said, we're going to go meet Paul. And so when Paul meets these people, this is what he says to them. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And a little bit later in, in the same chapter, he says, Therefore, watch, remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I want to look at this scripture real quick of how Paul never took shortcuts in his ministry, never took shortcuts in his obedience with Christ. The first thing he says is, you know what kind of manner of a man I was when I lived among you. That Paul's first defense was his testimony. And to me, that's pretty powerful because a lot of times people, you know, we say things like, oh man, you know, I'm a sinner or I'm this or I'm that. It's almost like we've got to lower ourselves before we preach the word. But Paul was like, no, you know I was like Christ when I was among you. That Paul's testimony wasn't some crutch that he walked on, but was actually something he leaned on for, for power. That he said, man, you know how I was like Christ and how I invested you guys while I was among you. That Paul wasn't just a Sunday preacher, but he was in these people, actually says, um, house by house, day by day, and publicly. That maybe Paul did preach on a Sunday, but man, he was in these people's lives day by day. There was no shortcuts in the way that Paul invested in these people. But also he says... That there was many tears and trials which happened to him by the Jews. That this wasn't served to Paul on a silver platter of being a good testimony to these people. But in the midst of doing all this ministry, there was people trying to kill him. There was people trying to rob him. There was people trying to deceive him. That there was so much pressure on Paul, but yet he never allowed that pressure to, to cause him to make shortcuts in the ministry that God had called him to as an apostle. And finally, I love this one. Man, for three years, he says day and night that he warned these people with tears. That there was this love that Paul had for the church that went way beyond even a good testimony, but that, that he cried out to these people in tears that they would be established in the person of Christ. And for, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, it's another great one. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had a sense of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. That Paul got to a point in his ministry that it says, man, he despaired of life. That he, he, he was in this despair of, really, I mean, what it kind of sounds to me is depression. You know, he was at rock bottom in this um, area in Asia because of the persecution and the lack of resources that they had. But what does it say Paul did? It didn't say, I despaired of life, so I took a quick sabbatical to Hawaii so I could recover, and then I came back to the ministry. No, he said he learned to trust in God who raises the dead. That Paul didn't cop out, that Paul didn't find a shortcut, but instead what Paul found was a newfound faith in Christ.
Christ that way surpasses circumstances or anything that could get in his way. And, and he learned that God not only delivered him there, but he was currently delivering him. And that's the same thing that God may have established us in the past, but he wants to continue to establish us. He wants to continue to bring us to fullness and maturity in him. And I believe that not just for leaders, but for the body of Christ, we come to these moments in our discipleship and our maturing that our flesh is like screaming at us to take a shortcut. This is too hard. This is not what I want to do. This is there's other opportunities, other places that I don't want to be established. And it's so easy for us to want to take those shortcuts. But one of the biggest problems in maturity, I believe, in the church today is the shortcuts we take when times get hard. And I pray that for us at ESS, when times get hard, we look to these testimonies not only that Christ was faithful to the end. Now, Christ was in the garden sweating blood, but he didn't decide not to go to the cross. But he went anyways, that Paul was despairing of life in Asia, and he didn't just stop doing ministry then, but he continued to press on for the call that Christ had on his life. Our second point we're going to look at is deception. In Colossians 2.8 it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Also in 2 Corinthians 11.13-15 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. The reason I bring up these two scriptures, and when we look at Ephesians 14, it uses the word, um, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And when we look at these three scriptures, I had this conversation with Rick, and I don't know why this is stuck in my mind the way it has, but we were talking about false teachers or false brethren is what it says in Galatians. And we think of like a false teacher, a false brethren walking in the back of the church with their hood up and a sinister look on their face and just ready to deceive people. That's not the way it works. That these people, it says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, something that's representing something that's good, something that's righteous, and that it's not just by our wit or by our good intentions that we won't be deceived. That if we rely on our wit and we rely on our good intentions, we're guaranteed, really, to be Deceive, And that's why when we look at Ephesians 4, 11, and 13, and it's so important not just to know this, but to do this, because that's the process and the promise that God's really given us so that we don't fall into this deception. But see, the thing about deception, and I've fallen into this um, fault before myself, is we get skeptical. It's like, man, I don't want to get deceived, so I'm going to kind of put up walls and make sure I don't get deceived. But in that process, we're just getting deceived by ourselves because we're not coming encounter or coming and encountering God's truth. And so just by being skeptical doesn't keep us from being deceived either. There's two quick analogies. One, um, when they train bank tellers or anybody who's dealing with a lot of money, they don't treat or um, teach them what it looks like to find counterfeit money. They don't just show a bunch of counterfeit money and say, make sure none of this comes into the bank. All they do is they really train them of what the qualities of real money are. And so they know that there's certain marks and watermarks and different things that are on real money. So if a fake or counterfeit of bill comes in, it's just they know so much what the real is like that the counterfeit they just throw out because it's not that hard to detect because they know the genuine so much. And our, our, our goal as believers isn't to become experts on, ooh, who are the false teachers. Our 
condition as believers is to know the, the genuineness of Christ. If we know Christ intimately, this stuff will, it, it'll be obvious, man, this, is, this isn't true. And that's what Paul wasn't running around pointing out the Pharisees. Paul's genuineness in Christ exposed the Pharisees. That his genuineness of portraying who Christ was actually exposed those who weren't living for the gospel. The second analogy was um, last summer I was canoeing with Sarah and my family, and I've never really done that before, and it's fun. And um, there was one other group that was canoeing, though, that kept turning sideways. And when they kept turning sideways, other boats or canoes kept running into them, and it was really frustrating. And one time my parents' boat ran into them, or canoe, and our dogs flew out of the canoe, and we were trying to chase them down somewhere in the river, trying to get a hold of them and get them back in the boat. And it was just this huge mess. So we canoed really fast to try to get ahead of this other boat. And once we did, we like slowed down for a little bit. Well, then we looked past next to us, and that boat is going past us again. So we're all frustrated. Me and Sarah start looking at this boat, and they start turning sideways again. And we like started making fun of them about, man, it's not that hard to drive the, the canoe straight. So we're looking at them making fun of them, and pretty soon our canoe sideways, just like their canoe sideways, because we weren't just focusing on going straight. We were making fun of them for going sideways. And see, that's the thing about being to see what the devil will do is he'll get us on anything else but Christ. Because as soon as our eyes are off of Christ, we're going to go sideways. But when our eyes are on Christ, our eyes are on the Word, God has time for our mistakes. He really does. But when we're critical and we're skeptical, that's what gets us in trouble. But if our eyes are on Christ and we're focusing on Him, He'll give us time to figure out. He'll give us time to mature. But when we're so concerned about everybody else going sideways, we will be sideways before you know it. And there's seven things I want us to consider about keeping our eyes on the genuine and being rooted in. One is his gospel, and we should never be tired of the gospel of Christ. That Paul makes it clear, man, there are deep things in the word, and he says at some point we've got to move past the elementary principles of Christ, that we can't always just maybe study the same thing. But the power of the gospel should never get old in our life. That, that what Christ has done in our salvation should never take a back seat. Two is word, that we've got to be grounded in the truth of the gospel. But three is spirit. Jesus says you, you, we have to worship him in spirit and truth. We can't just become historians of the Bible. But we have to read the Bible in the lens of the spirit and have the Holy Spirit teach us what the word is saying. Fourth, we've got to be in his body. That, that in order to not be deceived, we need accountability. I'm not always going to be right. You're not always going to be right. But we can help each other to, to hold each other accountable to the truth in the gospel. Number five is his process that we've seen in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. This is something that we'll kind of talk about in the end of, of the sermon. But we can't just know about this scripture. We have to do the scripture. We have to have the boots on the ground of what it looks like to accomplish God's process. And finally, we need faith and we need endurance. And we're going to touch on faith and endurance here in a little bit. So finally, we get to compromise, and compromise and being deceived really work hand in hand, but if we compromise, we will not be established in Christ. So I want to read in Genesis 3 what, what Satan used to deceive Adam and Eve, because Satan's been using the same tactics for a really long time. And so if we go back to Genesis, we'll be able to figure out kind of what how he tends to deceive us. And we see that it says, now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest 
and die. And the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat, it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was, was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The first thing that the devil did was he said, has God indeed said? That the first thing that Satan was trying to get Eve to do was to compromise on God's word. Are you sure God really said that? And there's this trend in our culture that if you study the word enough, historically, culturally, it's not really saying what it looks like it's saying. But times have changed all this stuff. It's not true. The word of God is the word of God. And when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree, he meant don't eat from the tree. But what did Satan try to do? He tried to get Eve to compromise on the word of God. And as soon as she entertained, well, maybe God didn't exactly mean that, or maybe God was just giving me a guideline, slowly but surely from that compromise is where Eve was deceived. And once there's compromise fits into a church or to a society, one thing I really want us to own as leadership, as people in the church, is God is not that concerned about your individualism of if you compromise He's concerned in corporate, that corporately, as the church, do we compromise? And this is seen all throughout, especially the Old Testament, that Joshua and um, the Israelites and Moses, when they left Egypt, God promised the Israelites they would enter the promised land. Almost everyone that received that promise died in the promised land, except a couple people. And so did God fail his promise because that, that group didn't reach the promised land? No, he didn't fail his promise because he didn't promise those people he promised Israel. And see, for us, it's not just about our individual promises, but God won't bless things when we're a mixed bunch of compromise. Even if we individually are standing up for the truth, our job as the body of Christ isn't just for our individual self, but it's for the whole body. And that when we compromise and we don't want to offend other people or offend other churches, whatever it is, that, that we are then compromised. Even if we ourselves are standing on the truth. As soon as we compromise on holding others accountable, we might as well ourselves be compromised. And this is seen in Revelation 2, 14 through 16. It says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things offered to idols, and commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. That there was these doctrines within this church that it says, man, God hated them. And he didn't say just because there was a few people being faithful, it's no big deal. But this, these bits and pieces of compromising were compromising the whole church. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. We just need a little bit of compromise to affect everyone. And this is so important that we'll get to in a minute, that not only do we find individual repentance, but corporate. That there are things that Jesus, I don't, for a lot of us, I don't know how many times we've looked at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, but man, we got to see this fruit in our church. And if we're not seeing the fruit in our church, why aren't we seeing the fruit in our church? And those are things we got to be honest with each other, leadership honest with each other, and those are things when God reveals, man, we have compromised something in the Word or compromised individually, man, He says, He gives us the option to repent. He doesn't say, I'm you're wrong, I'm going to fight with you with the sword of my mouth. He's saying, man, if you're unwilling to repent, if you're unwilling to listen, then he will come 
and fight against us with the sword of our mouth. But he's, he's patient. Man, God is super patient. And if we would listen and find repentance corporately and find repentance individually, I really believe that we would start to see the fruit of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 in our church. But if we're unwilling to hear, not just individually, but corporately from the leadership down, uh, we, we aren't guaranteed to see these promises. But whoever does listen, man, they will sin. Just like Israel. That group of people didn't. They died off. God started over. And that we need to be able to listen and hear what God is saying to the churches. So one, there can be shortcuts. Two, there can be deception. But three, is there compromise? Are we compromising on truths of the word? Start to wrap up um, with Matthew 7, 24 through 27. It says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them all, I liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was found on the rock. For everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Like we said at the beginning, God wants to establish us. He wants you to be the guy who has the house in the rock. He wants you to be the person when the rains come and things are hard, all this stuff, that we can stand. But we do this by hearing the word and putting it into practice. We hear this, we do this by being doers of the word, not just hearing. And in James 2, it says that, man, if we hear the word and we don't do it, that we end up deceiving ourselves. This, this part is so important. In this establishment, God in his favor, in his grace, and his mercy, he just hasn't made it complicated for us to be established. And he's put the word in front of us, and the question for us is, will we hear it, and will we do it? In Luke 9, 26, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, in his fathers and the holy angels. That we can't, when we hear the word and we don't do it, it's all almost a question to ask ourselves, are we ashamed of it? And are we ashamed of the word that God has put in us, or are we fearful of the word? And for those of you who got to um, help out yesterday with, with the Wilsons and just their testimony right now, John and I were talking a little bit afterwards, has been so encouraging of, they have put themselves in a place you know, where faith is required and the power of God is required. And what's going to be cool about that is two or three months from now, or maybe even hopefully five days from now, we'll have a testimony of Christ that was impossible if he didn't show up. But if we're never hearing the word and doing the word, we're so controlling and we're controlling our circumstance, how do we ever expect to see the promises and the faith of Christ show up? But we have to be able to put ourselves in deep water that we heard a couple weeks ago, but we can't touch, for God to actually show up. And part of that is we got to quit justifying where we fall short. Again, God's not mad at us, but he wants us to be honest. Man, when we're falling short, let's be honest and say we're falling short. And in faith, in his power to restore, man, we'll start to see that testimony be established in us. But the question is, are we willing to let go? Are we willing to actually receive what God is doing? Are we willing to put ourselves in a circumstance or even our family in a circumstance that doesn't look good, but allows God to do what only he can do in the midst of our circumstances? We have three scriptures of kind of tying this together in short. We can start um, bringing the worship team guy up and um, the offering as well. But I want to look at Colossians 2, 6 through 7. We've already looked at this one. But he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. 
that there comes this establishment, but we've talked a lot about the word and the hearing of the word and doing the word. And there's two scriptures that, that really, I think, tie in here. And it's Romans 10, 17. So that the faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we've got to hear the word and we've got to put our trust in his promises. The second thing in Luke 18, 7 through 8 says, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And when Christ comes back, and he's not looking for us to be perfect, he's not looking for us to have every doctrinal question figured out, he's looking, do we have faith? Do we read his word, do we believe his word, and do we do his word? That's what faith is. Faith requires action. And if you're in a season where it seems like we've been tossed to and fro by the wind of doctrine, if we've been in a season that seems really hard, want to look at Hebrews 6. He says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And I just know for a fact that if we have faith and we have patience and we have repentance and we read his word, then we will inherit the promises. And God, this establishment that he wants to have in us individually and corporately will truly come to fruition. Going back to being established in the fullness. That we need his gospel, we need his word, we need his spirit, we need his body, we need his process, we need faith, and we need to persevere. We need to end up continuing to do these things. We could bring up um, the offering. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much man, for the opportunity to give, God, that everything we have is already yours, Lord. And I pray that each one of us, God, with whatever you've put on our heart, Father, in faith that we would give, God, that you say you love a cheerful giver, Lord. And so just pray that any um, thoughts of obligation, Father, or begrudging um, giving, Lord, would just be gone, God, and that, that each one, whether they give or don't give, Father, would produce all faith in Jesus. And I pray that he assists with steward um, whatever is given, God. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. As we begin to close um, the service, as always, we want an opportunity to, to provide um, you guys time to come up and pray um, individually or with someone, but also if you have a word. And please, if God's stirring up something you don't hesitate to come up and share what the Lord's put on your heart. Give an honor to God, to whom all honors do. I just thank the Lord for once again having the opportunity to be in his house among his saints. He is truly my strength. Um, it's just, um, it's just kind of my, my heart is just overjoyed because listening to the words that he gave Brother Luke, God was giving me those words on the way to church. <laughs> and um, one thing he was telling me is that we are going through the motions. And how dare we try to passively serve an active God is that we've been looking away instead of looking up and looking to him. We've been just trying to get by and not trying to get God and trying to get through the right way. And the Lord is here to take us through there but we've been depending on ourselves and we know what self can do and how harmful self can be to us. We need to seek God in the moment. When things aren't well, when we try to just look away, we need to look to God 
and be there in the moment and know that he is our strength, no matter how weak we feel we are. Lord wants us to start seeing and not just looking. He wants us to listen and not just hear. Since we serve such an active God, we have to be prepared. We have to stop that sleepwalking because that's not good for any of us. We might be walking, but we're not conscious at all, and we can cause harm to ourselves, others, and to situations. So the Lord wants us to just wake up and start walking in him. Look ahead, set that goal. We're just walking through, and we're not even looking at what goal the Lord wants or what we desire. We need to set that goal, and though things come in our our way, and we have these stumbling blocks, we need to look to the Lord. And how we look to him, we not need to just look again. We need to see, and we need to listen, because he's there. We have an awesome God. We have a powerful God. We have an omnipotent God. So in the moment, he is right there. We just need to take those blinders off, and as Luke was saying, put on the lens of the Spirit, and don the, the culture of Christianity, and that is not looking away. That's not compromising. That's being an active Christian and serving the Lord and looking and having faith. Amen. Um, take some time to pray on that one. If you guys want to come up on the altar and pray on what's been shared, what Peach just shared, really encourage you guys.